What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. On? We're on. We're on. And look, I can't believe that we are here with the great Dennis Murin, the great Star Wars theory. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Rule of Two. And I, I've been... Um, this this episode, I think, is a career in the making, uh, you know, for me. Like, I I've, I've, don't want to sound like too much of a fanboy, but um, I think ever... Oh, you're good. Sorry. Sorry about that. I just got a little feedback there. Um, I think I first heard your name um, after watching uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, is where it smacked me, you know, um, the hardest. And I know this is a Star Wars themed show, but to me, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that scene where um, the, the bad guy's face melts off was just like a, a sort of breakthrough moment in in storytelling for me where I was like, okay, I go to the movie theaters to truly witness fantasy incarnate. And, you know, much, you know, pretty soon after that, I, I connected as a very young child, your name with the magic behind that face melting. And, you know, to this, you know, but it wasn't even, was that, was that not even you? Wasn't even me. It was Chris Wallace and a bunch of other guys. <laughs> right. But somehow it was all my... a lie. <laughs> it was all a lie. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a cameo role in that movie. That's the only oh, connection. We were doing Dragon Slayer at that time. What, and that's what, what's, your, like... what's your cameo role in that movie? You know, I think, I think it's someone who looks like Toth. Is that his name? Or Toth or something gets on an airplane with Harrison. Oh, okay. And he's sitting behind him, reading a Life magazine, and it comes down the spy, and that's me. <laughs> okay, cool. But I had nothing to do with the melting faces or any of that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, we'll go. We'll get into Star Wars in a second. But it wasn't your first Academy Award for special effects on Raiders, or was it Indiana Jones and the Last Crew? And I'm sorry, the Temple of Doom. I didn't get anything on Raiders. I was hoping for a supporting actor or actor or <laughs> anything. You know, Herschel Award, nothing. Yeah, uh, my first one is for Empire. For Empire, but then uh, I, you worked did... on, I worked on Star Wars, but I wasn't high enough in the group to get a nomination. But, but my my Indiana Jones like loving youth is dying inside of me. But you did get one oh, for. I, I worked on Temple of Doom. That, was, that, that one was... did get. That one did get the Oscar. That's it. Right, 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 right. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, okay. So Temple of Doom, which is actually one of my favorites too. I mean, I love all of those movies, but um, so we we usually start these shows off we've had a lot of folks um on the show like paul hirsch and and you know other folks that have worked with george over the years and we typically start the questions off with uh what was it like the first time that you met george lucas uh you know i was just really glad to to get a job and i got hired i I met john before once uh John Dykstra and managed to get on the Star Wars show, not knowing what to expect or anything. And it wasn't probably till probably three or four weeks after I was on it that George came by. He was in England uh, working on the show. I don't know if they were shooting or or what. I don't think they were shooting the show yet. 
So when he came by and he was just really, you know, nice guy, quiet. And I'd seen graffiti and THX and thought, you know, great movies. That's one of the reasons I really wanted to get on the show was to meet him. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I do effects, but I love filmmakers. And, uh, and, you know, and then, you know, as the show went on, I got to work with them, you know, a lot closer. And um, on that show, which was, I was probably, you know, we were on it. I was about it for about a year or something like that, I guess. But he's really nice. He's exactly what you've heard about uh, and incredibly smart and open to ideas mm. and uh, will make the right decisions practically every time. And, and you came into the Star Wars um, gig because you had a pretty extensive background in kind of maybe as a hobbyist, but as a stop motion animator. Uh, that was kind of your thing, right? That, like, like you had done that on your own um, as a hobby, and you had enough kind of skills in that world, in a world that not a lot of people even knew how to do that stuff. Right. I'd been doing effects since I was like literally six or seven years old with a still camera. And uh, I made little home movies in 8mm before there was Super 8, and got a 16, shot a lot of effects stuff, you know, earthquake, stop motion, you know, uh, spaceships, Dinosaurs, you know, the same stuff when way, way back then. And I did, but, and it got better, you know, as time went on. I did a low budget movie called Equinox on my own uh, that got released. I sold it to Jack Harris, came out in the theaters. That was when I was like 18 or 19. And then uh, got in, we had friends that, and so I got into Cascade Pictures for a little bit, which is a commercial house. And we did Pillsbury Doughboy and a lot of stuff, but there was no feature work at all. There was, you know, the studios, you couldn't get into any of the studios because they were union positions. I had no skills. I never worked a 35 millimeter camera. What can I do? And so it never ever seemed like it was going to be a profession, even though it was like 24 hours a day, I was doing it. Eventually I was going to have to get a job. And uh, I was just dreading when that was going to happen. And I managed to fake around till I was in my like early to mid 20s before I had to get a real job because I was out of money. And uh, and then Star Wars came on. I, mean, I got to work at Cascade sort of in their closing days and they went out of business. So then there was really nothing. And then I heard about Star Wars and uh, contacted Dykstra on it and managed to get onto that show. I really wanted to do it. I knew it was the technology that had been done in some to some extent with with 2001 which was not the school that i came from all me and my friends were all doing stop motion high speed miniatures you know composites and mats and stuff like that none of the none of the newer stuff with with electronics and motors and everything that was done in 2001 so i really wanted to get on the show and managed uh you know very few people knew how to do it so even though i didn't have that much professional experience uh you know john hired me so um, not a lot of people maybe know this, but Theory, when he was like six or seven years old, wanted to get a job. Do you want to yeah. maybe bring that, that was, up? That was my first, my, my, you know, kids have dream jobs of working, you know, uh, as an astronaut or whatever. I wanted to work at ILM and I wanted to make lightsabers. That was it. <laughs> so I wanted to work for the next, you know, the, the prequels weren't out at that point. But uh, no. yeah, so I wanted to go work there and do special effects and stuff. And my parents put me in a computer school when I was a kid and I had this dream and it didn't happen, but that was, that was my first thing. And I know that you helmed ILM, uh, at the very beginning. Um, can you tell us a lot about that? You know, I was one of many employees, you know, we had, there were like three or four or five of us that were supervising shows. Originally it was just John Dykstra on the first star Wars. Then I did 
Then there were three of us or two of, I forget what it was, how it was for the empire. And then it got a little bigger, you know, and there'd be four or five effects supervisors and all. So it really wasn't the helm on it. There was a production person all the time. George didn't, I don't think he trusted the artist being in charge, mm-hmm. uh, which was probably a very wise thing because I think all the money would disappear and the time would, you know, I mean, everybody's different. Some people would never let go of a shot. Mm-hmm. They'd keep working on it because it's not perfect. And uh, other people would spend all the money to make everything beautiful to look at, except the camera, except they're building a camera and no one ever sees the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was having an outside sort of person, production person being in charging was great. And I've always been very responsible for that. And, and I think that I, I don't try to ever perfect anything. My job really as much as trying to fulfill what I want to see in the director on the screen is to get something that is good enough. And I mean that only in the best way, good enough that that you can move on to the next thing and move on to the next shot and move on to the next shot. I'd hate to have a career where all you ever did were eight or 900 perfect shots. When I have done, you know, 8,000 that are like 95%. Most people can't see the bad 5% of it, but I can see, I can. And that's where the magic part comes in. You know, I'm saying, look here when I, when something isn't working down here. And instead right. of thinking this, we're on to the next shot. In those so, early days, I'm sorry, I'm yeah. sorry. Go, no, ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. In those early days of Star Wars 1977 release, and then it's like it's like this classic Beatles type run of like, you know, Sgt. Pepper, White Album, Abbey Road. It, it, it's it's Star Wars. It's Empire Strikes Back. It's ET. It's Raiders. It's Temple of Doom. I mean, that is Jurassic an, Park. No, no, that's much later. But, <clears throat> but yes, but that's an astonishing run in those in those late seventies, eighties. Um, like, what was that like from a cultural perspective inside the company? You know, I, it was pretty astonishing. I mean, I never saw the culture that we were, or whatever we were introducing. I I know everything too well. I've always been in that culture anyway, of loving that work and loving those kind of shows. But it wasn't until like the mid eighties, people were saying, you know, you're affecting the culture. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're opening up people's visions to what they can do. And, and uh, you know, the movies are phenomenal. I knew that part, but I just didn't realize that the effect it had, you know, until, you know, eight years into it or so, something like that. Part of it is that, you know, a show ends and literally, Four or five days later, I'm probably on an airplane going to a location. So there's never a time to stop and think, well, for me at that time, to stop and think about what was going on. It was always the next series of problems. And if you look at the stuff we had to do, I mean, from my standpoint, you know, all the different sequences in Empire that I was involved with, you know, the, the Walker sequence and I can't, you know, you know, all the, the uh, asteroid sequence and a whole bunch of stuff through there all needed to be designed and, you know, work, I have to work with a great team of people. But as soon as that's done, we're on, I'm on the in, way to England because we've got to solve a dragon to make a dragon look more realistic than it's ever been before. Now, nobody said that it had to look more realistic, but that was the goal that me and my friends had to make something amazing. And then before that's even over, you know, I'm off to LA, you know, from San Francisco here, shooting plates for E.T., you know, this funny little movie that Stephen thought, I think I got something here. I think this is going to be good. <laughs> Whereas everybody at ILM wanted to work on the other show, Poltergeist. I mean, that was the big film. And here I am kind of working on a few of these shots in E.T., literally in the corner, because there's no room left. 
Wow. Because Poltergeist and Star Trek are taking over the whole facility. They had all the cameras. So I had to shoot everything in, in the four perf with standard cameras instead of our big VistaVision cameras, try to make that work. And then before that's even done, it's off to the Redwood Forest for Jedi. So it's it's cool. work, 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 work. And, you know, the wonderful thing about it is that, you know, I had a great team. You've got great directors. You know, the movies are going to be great. And it's like, you know, I'm a kid. But instead of making the whole movie that's pretty mediocre, I just do my little part. And then I've got all these other people that are making the rest of it really great. <laughs> you got John yeah. Williams doing the music for me. you got Spielberg directing for me. We got, you know, Harrison for me. I'm getting the vibe. You're, you're, you're very humble because there's a reason you have so many Oscars hanging behind you and more that we probably can't see. So there's something you're not yeah. telling us here. Yeah. Uh, six more that we can't see if yeah. I do the math correctly. Nine um, in total. Which is so insane. do you wish you had stepped back a little bit more and taken it in now that you can reflect on it? Or, what, or, or is that the right pace to just keep running and running and running? No, I'm glad I did. You know, I had to slow down when we had our first son. And uh, that's when I took uh, took some time off and I did start tours and, you know, the amusement ride. So I had that wasn't at the same sort of pace as everything else. So, no, you know, you just you go where you can. You always think this is the end. You know, this, yeah. this is the phase, right? Up, up until this time, most of the most of the things, the movies that were made, they'd be in phases. Stuff would be really popular for two years, three years, you know, big musical numbers, and then gone. People are sick of them. You know, Westerns, you know, Gary Cooper and all the big for three or four years, gone. And I, and Ken Ralston and myself and Phil Tippett, all of us, you know, the, we're all good friends from the beginning. We all thought this was going to be over in two years. So it's not like there was going to be anything after Empire Strikes Back. Or, there, or, or after Dragon Slayer, or after Raiders. Raiders, you know, what's that? You know, it look, it's, it's you know, and, and between Raiders and Star Wars, they're both serials, like based on serials, right? Serials were never very popular. Right. <laughs> so it seems like these are not going to really go, but they'll be fun to work on. And they're still so, so alive today. So what did you think when... when still going on. <laughs> what did you think when George came back, you know, almost two decades later and, and wanted to make the prequels? And now, you know, technology had shifted and changed and advanced so much. Well, at first I thought, really? Is he really going to do it? He'd been talking about, about it, you know, years before, but nothing that I heard up until that time. So it's fine with me. He can do, you know, do anything he wants. And I'm, I'm there. I didn't do it. I worked on part of it. Mm -hmm. I didn't, didn't do the whole thing or anything like that on the first one. I worked a little tiny bit on the second prequel. That right. was about it. But, you know, so it was you know, good for him. And we, were, we, we had all the, all the CG stuff. So I saw it as a big opportunity, and George certainly took advantage of it, you know, to just load him up with with what was in his head all along from the first Star Wars that he couldn't do. Right. You know, the technology wasn't there, there wasn't time, there wasn't the money or anything, and now he could do it. To to go to go back uh, to the earlier days um, on on Empire Strikes Back, I've I've seen you talk in in an interview that there was actually a an idea to make the walkers robotic and actually sort of remote controlled robots uh, for the scenes. And, uh, and then you opted to do it in stop motion. Just, just out of curiosity, like were you guys really going to build walking robotic like walkers? Was that, was that really in the budget? Well, you know, 
uh, there's, you know, there were a number of people in charge. You know, there's Richard Edlin, me, um, there are other folks in there. Brian Johnson was in there. This, it was not my idea to do a walking robot walker. It was just a discussion. But I just thought, you can't do that. I, you know, having gone through what's on some of the previous shows, when the you get those sort of robotics and mechanical stuff that's never been done before, they may be wonderful, but they cost a fortune. They go over budget. They never get done on time. And the movie's got to get done on time. You know, we just barely got Star Wars done. We just barely got Close Encounters done. We just barely got I mean, anything in there, just barely, barely got done. So I just I just didn't want to do it. And then, and for whatever reason, George said, fine. And I thought, dude, you know, Dennis, you do the sequence I wanted to do anyway. So he said, fine. So me and Phil and, you know, my other how, pals came on. Yeah. How, how long did it take for you guys to film those walkers and, <laughs> and, and like, you know, that, that entire sequence that we see to us, you know, goes by in like in a flash, but to you, when you look at that, do you remember weeks or months? What 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 kind of timeline are we looking at? You know, you start with building the stuff, and that takes you know weeks to build it, figure out. And I'm not involved in this part, but getting the the mechanical part to work. You know, with blueprints. You know, Tom Santamon engineering the walker to get it to work. He'd done a lot of that before, so it's like you know weeks to get it ready or two months. We had to get the backgrounds up, the whole setup. I wanted to do it like you know King Kong had been done where you look through the camera and that's it. You see the finished shot, except for the speeders flying by, through the camera. I, didn't, I wanted to avoid blue screen or any of that sort of stuff. And it took a while to get that going. And the actual shooting of it, you know, it'd be a matter of three to four months, probably. Something like that. Wow, some, done four big sets, some done on blue screens, all sorts of different things coming together. Wow. Wow. And now, nowadays, you just rig the model and, and go into it. And I want to get into that uh, heavy as well, because... You know, the, the fascinating thing about your career is that you're instrumental into the evolution of the special effects art form from practical to digital in a glorious fashion that we'll get into in a lot of detail. But Theory, did you want to dig in on Empire a little, you know, anyway? Uh, well, yeah, my, my question to you is what would what at the time was the most difficult thing um, or obstacle to overcome when it came to making Empire? You know, the time. The complexity, I mean, when when we, that, that was also George asked us to move up north. So, you know, we moved up about right. probably eight or 10 of us. But that's a big deal, saying goodbye to your families and everything, coming yeah. on up. And then we had, we wanted to set the place up, or George wanted to sue with a lot of local people. This is all incredibly connected to how you feel about how the show is going to be done. Because if you don't have a crew that works, you can be screwed. Right. I, I always look ahead. And in the case of that, it's like two years. And you think we can get this shot done, the show done in two years. And then George showed us when we first flew up, he was doing sort of a little dog and pony to get us to come on up here. And he had a lot of Rouse artwork. Joe Johnson was already up here doing stuff. And we looked at this and it's like, oh my God, this is so much bigger than Star Wars. I mean, that's <laughs> like one episode of a, you know, of a serial. This is like five episodes. Because if you think about it, you know, you got the Tauntaun, you got the Walkers. Yeah. You got the you got the star destroyers. So you got all the scale difference between you know the little ties, the X-wings, and these big star destroyers. And uh, you know, it just goes on and on. I mean, the asteroid sequence is one of the hardest things, just to just to figure out how to make it readable to the audience. Mm. So it didn't just look chaotic, like you could follow the story. Right. You know, 
And there was just stuff all the way through it. So it, that all needed to be solved. That they were all their separate, had their separate problems, separate solutions, separate design issues, had to cut into the movie. You know, you're, you're in black space and you're cutting from this angle to that angle. Well, how can you tell where you're looking if there's like no like horizon line like there is right. here you know, on Earth? So, right. and you know, that's, and one of the things I did in that is I put an asteroid belt in the, in the uh, uh, asteroid sequence. So you always knew if you were at least looking up or down. Wow. So there's tricks like that, you know, hundreds of tricks that are going on all the time that apply to digital effects today. Absolutely. Yep. You try to do the same thing without those tricks, you'd be confused. And, uh, you know, so I, I think it's really timeless, the art of, of visual effects. It has nothing to do with the tool at all. You you mentioned once that um, for Empire, uh, you guys were so rushed, uh, you know, to your point, uh, that there's actually, for the release, there was prints of the film that went out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and this always kind of bugged you, but I'll, I'll just say they were printed the film that went out with shots that you didn't approve. Like, that's, like that's right. We didn't get them done. You know, their their temps, their take twos, or whatever like that. And I, I can't remember the number. It may be like thirty, and they were seventy millimeter prints. They're the ones oh, that wow. had to go, they had to go off first. Seventy millimeter. They took longer to make. Uh, then they get shipped out. And I remember talking to somebody, and he's ah, don't worry, Dennis. Well. You know, they'll only, you know, we're only like five days behind. They'll ship them back and in five days we'll replace them, you know, with good ones. I, I don't know if that ever happened. I doubt it. But, you know, who knows? Have you yeah. ever been able to track down one of these unfinished original 70 millimeter prints? Nobody, I don't think anybody even knows about that. I've meant, I'm the only oh, person yeah. I've ever heard any, who's talked about it. And, you know, it's so long ago now, you know, they're probably around. They would have been so faded. It probably everything looks either amazingly real or amazingly fake. I don't know, depending on, but if you like that magenta cast that's behind your head right now, that's the way that the prints all get after, you know, 10 years. <laughs> um, you know, one, one thing that to me is, is, is the reason I'm a Star Wars fan um, is that to me, George Lucas embodies the sort of modern day Leonardo da Vinci, that it's not just about the art, it's also about the craft and the technology that drives the art forward and that drives um, creation forward. And to me, it's fascinating because in that run from when you guys started with Star Wars, I, you know, I'd say all the way up to Revenge of the Sith, every single project that ILM Lucasfilm was involved with pushed forward the, the, the entire industry, right? Like, and to me, none of it is better accentuated than in your work on The Abyss, which you won an Academy Award for. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. With the introduction of the first kind of filmic CGI character at that level that eventually evolved into the T2 character. Um, what, what Was that kind of philosophy of that responsibility of pushing technology always part of you guys picking which projects you worked on? You know, I don't think it had much to do with at that time as to which projects to work on. Uh, we usually got the best projects and the best projects come from the most visionary directors, whether it's Bob Zemeckis asking for the craziest split screens you've ever seen in the Back to the Future movies. You know, that stuff's never been done before. And Ken Rawlson had to figure it out. I loved the computer stuff. And I, it, I was, you know, I mean, I love what I'm doing 
because, not because of the process. I don't particularly like any of the process, no matter what decade it's working in, but I like the end result. So I'm always looking forward to a visual end that I find interesting and one that I, I hope the audience has never seen before. So it perks them up. You know, I haven't seen this before. They don't know why, you know, but that's in there. So uh, I was just always looking for stuff that was going to be new. And, and we all thought that, that the tool set we had in the mid 80s and especially by the late 80s, was sort of obsolete. We were hitting the wall. There was no way you could make, you know, anything look any better than what we done, but it still looked familiar, you know, because you just couldn't, you couldn't do the impossible, right? We, you know, we thought we could, but you can't. There's all, because it is all trickery. So I'm one of the people in there that really pushed for computer graphics and to, and to get it into production, doing from the first uh, thing that I had done, which is the stained glass man and Sherlock, which came out really well. Uh, so, you know, I think that spirit that I had, and I'm sure other people in there too, and it's definitely there today is wanting to do stuff that's different and, and new, you know? So I think that's always, it's always been there. It wasn't, it wasn't like George said, we're doing something new all the time, you know? Right, Look, right. Like the sound group was the same way. Look at all the sound stuff that they've oh, of course. Revolutionary, you know? Yeah. Everything. Everything. Um, yeah. it, it is with the company, but that, but they're. That company was put together, I think, of a really group of, of people who saw beyond the present. And, you know, the ones that were stayed with it were the, were the ones that kept it going. Yeah. And other people and, dropped out for various reasons. And video games as well, right? You have, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, like if it wasn't for LucasArts, you know, um, the video game company, like you know the the Atari uh, uh, you know sponsored a Star Wars game, the sit-in one, or X-wing, or you know Star Wars Galaxies. I mean, just every single time that that LucasArts made a game, Loom, um, you know the the Indiana Jones graphic uh, you know adventure stuff. Like every single time Lucas touched something, the entire industry jumped forward. You know and. Um, you know, that's my biggest critique, to be honest with you, with all the sequel stuff is that, you know, stagecraft is a big deal. And, the, uh, you know, and, and like from a from an ILM perspective, that's exciting technology. And I've gotten to work with it a little bit myself, not that particular one, but similar tech, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, but it felt like that wasn't on the films as much as it was back in the day or, or it started to lose that level of importance. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. What do you mean it wasn't on referring to what? So, for example, with when you look at like um, uh, the Phantom Menace, you know you have Jar Jar up there, right? Like that's a completely new thing that's never really been done before, right? When when you look at Revenge of the Sith, you have all this incredible particle physics around the lava effects that is just like it's just mind blowing right. stuff. Right. When you look at you know the Phantom Menace, it just looks like a throwback to the old kind of technique uh, without introducing any new kind of leap forward. Uh, which is okay, you know. Uh, you know, once something is perfect, it's perfect. It just seems like it loses a little bit of that responsibility, you know, if you right. will. Yeah, you're talking about Phantom Menace there at the end. Uh, no, no, I'm talking about uh, the Force Awakens. Oh, Force uh, Awakens. Oh, right. Oh. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. You know, I uh, maybe there's something there. Yeah. Right. I don't know. Right. Fair no. enough. Fair enough. Um, if if George had all the technology, let's say that you know he has today, or had even when he was making the prequels, it's not about the technology, but go ahead. 
Right. You're right. <laughs> would the story have changed at all? Would he have been able to tell it? I mean, he would have been able to make it more flashy, flashy, I suppose. But, you know, you always hear that he wanted to do things differently or he had all these ideas and he wanted to make the prequels first, but he didn't have the technology at the time to do the clones and this and that. And so he went and in the middle of the story, which he found more interesting. But if that technology, or let's say he did it in reverse, if he created the originals uh, later, like in you know 1999, do you know if the story was supposed to be different? Would it have been fleshed out more, or would things have changed? You know, I don't know. I know that you know an artist will, if he's goal oriented, which is how the end result. It yeah. doesn't matter how you get there, and is right. if he can or anybody can configure how to do something you know, 50% of what you want, yeah. then you think is 50% as from a story point from the audience reacting, is that enough? And yeah. if it is, then you make a Star Wars. You right. know, he always said he got half of what he wanted in that show. To me, it was, <laughs> you know, it's like, what do you mean half of what? That was, you know, incredible. It was hard. It was impossible. Sure. But if from looking back at it now, I mean, even really a couple of years after that, I thought I know what he was seeing. He's seeing something that's not what I saw on the storyboard. He's seeing the entire film. And that's why I, I think that you, sir, you've got to have technology. And Star Wars would not have been what it was if there wasn't the dice reflex and all the compositing and all that going on, the model, mass produced, everything, be able to do those. However, you part of the trick is making the technology to make right. something that will knock people out when it's when you're done with it. And naturally, after five years or 20 years, it's going to be different if you're at a time when technology changes. And we've never been, I don't think, through much of a time that the technology has changed as much as it has now. And yeah. then, you know, the last 40 years. And any of us who have any, who like, you know, the little amazing stuff that's going on in your phone or just, or anything, you, you know, to be able to say, well, geez, you know, I'm sorry, but this isn't good enough, you know, uh, just toss it away. It's not sharp enough. Someone goes out and makes a camera that's 50 times sharper. Yeah, right. That's unheard of. I mean, that's yeah. a recent thing, and that's what we went through in all these. So the result's going to be better, but it's pushed because somebody said it's not sharp enough. I want to be able to blow it up, you know, fifty feet wide and have it be sharp. Well, why? Do you really need to? Well, I want to do it. He's got an idea. He wants to do it. So then people work on it. So I, I don't think you want to. I, I don't. I don't at least compare the look of the new films to the look of the old films. I. I look at the the time it was done. Yeah, they yeah. do as good as they could do, as clever as they could do, so that it fits in the story as good you know that's being told. And the outside look of it will always change. I almost feel like that's it for some reason. And I want to get your take on this too. I feel like the movies back then almost felt like you could follow the story a little more than the movies today. I almost feel like the movies today rely too heavily on the new technology. And they're not really fleshing out the story as much as before and the imaginative process of really telling the story. Whereas, you know, you go back to A New Hope and maybe it's nostalgia. I don't know. But I just felt like I could follow that story more because it didn't have as many of the special effects that, let's say, today's Transformers does or, or yeah, you know, some other right, right, Yeah. How big of a role do you think technology plays in making these movies? Or do you think we should be favoring storytelling more so than anything? Well, I think I like the end result, and I right. I am turned off quickly by just a lot of flash. Yeah. So, but I think flash is one of the things that you can do to keep the audience interested. 
Right. And, you know, with the speed of sporting events now, you know, 15, 20 cameras on a football field, you know, replays at, you know, is instantly from five different angles on something. We're used to a speed, which we weren't used to at Star Wars at all. And I think that speed has increased to the point where anything the studios can do to keep people in the seats, they're going to do. And people, just like when commercials sort of started, movies did speed up in theaters also because people were used to fast cutting commercials. I mean, not regular commercials. I think that's going on at the moment. And, you know, I love, you know, I thought wow. the, the, the uh, father was an incredible movie, but I don't know how many people younger than me are going to think that, right. you know, did you just grow up differently. And, and so, you know, who knows, maybe it's, you know, something that Doug Trumbull has been saying for 40 years, you know, it all caught up. He thinks it ought to be kind of entertainment anyway. And yeah. really is just more like dark rides and flash and all this sort of, he loves that. So um, yeah. I've never been a fan of that. It's like we all I got mean, ADD now as we get older. Yeah. Maybe we always had it. And, but you know, it, now you've got it from, you know, six months. It used yeah. to be, you know, occasionally you'd go see a fast paced movie every now and then and, but it wasn't enough that it actually your brain didn't actually form with that, with all those circuits already pre-wired. Yeah, so right. that by the time you're three, that's where you're at. And that's then, what you expect. Yeah. That's what you not only can you expect. Then all the hormones kick in because you're getting older and you're bored yeah. with that. Yeah. <laughs> you develop on that, you build on that. Yeah. So Smart. so uh, to to change gears here a little bit, but um to me I think that the story of special effects in Hollywood really revolves around these three films and that's, you know, The Abyss, T2 and then Jurassic Park. And you know, you were involved in all three of those movies. Um as far as I'm aware, right? You know, like like as an outsider kind of looking, you know, at those, you know, obviously. Um, what, what, what was that shift in terms of getting those dinosaurs to look that damn good that long ago? And was that technology that you guys had basically like created in terms of rendering programs and animation programs and, and, and being able to like do that? Just like, I've always wanted to ask you a little bit about just a little color about those three films and how it evolved into Jurassic Park? Well, you got to have the opportunity. And if you don't have the opportunity to make those movies, they won't get made. And, you know, between Cameron and Spielberg, you know, it was there. And then 10 years later, you know, George came along and did Phantom Menace, which just, you know, there had been nothing like that with 3,000 or 2,000 shots and armies fighting each other, all synthetic. You know, you, then Lord of the Rings comes out and Peter's doing it and everybody's doing it. And now it's just expected. But back then there was the, there was no expectation for it. And again, you know, you, it's having directors that want to see something they haven't seen. And I think having someone like me who from the being a kid wants to see something better than I saw last week in the theater, always looking for a better way to do it. And what does better mean? It's really not it's not the process. It's the end image to the audience. So I was always looking for that. And then uh, I would get challenged enough to be willing to take the risk to do The Abyss or to take the risk to do T2. And T2, to me, was always the breakthrough film. Mm -hmm. You know, anybody who knew, who knows much about it, suddenly, you know, you have the T1000 character in there, right? But there's no math lines around the character at all. 
and it looks like it's right in that set. The reflections match what's behind them, you know, and that's all because the technology we had allowed us to do it. And we took advantage of all that stuff and pushed and pushed. I took a year off right before that and read, you know, this 20 or this 1600 page book on computer graphics, which I knew nothing about. Mm. I'm not a mathematician, but I became familiar with it and confident enough to know that I knew and working at ILM were a few people that did know about it. They just needed some direction, you know, and I kind of, and that was my main role in the, in the shows, making sure the plates were shot right, making sure that, you know, we do shot designs that, that take advantage of the technology that nobody had seen, but I knew we could kind of do these now. We could do steady cam shots in Jurassic Park with the Gallimimus, you know, who'd ever heard of that? But I knew we could do it. And uh, so, you know, it's a, but with me then are teams of guys that are saying, we can do this, we can do it. And I'm not so really, can we really do that? And, you know, Mark DePayne, Steve Williams, and Stefan Fangmar were the main sort of guys under there in those two projects, uh, Jurassic and uh, T2, that really were, were pushing for it. And I'd always loved it. And then along comes an opportunity to do it, you know, especially with, it was so risky. T2 was really risky. But Jurassic really was too, because it was like broad daylight. The creatures are right there. They're they're not chrome. They've got to have skin. They've got to look like they're really there. So you just go through every step and try to solve every problem. First, you have to be able to find what's wrong with computer graphics, like the first set, you know, tests you do. And then you have to describe it accurately to the crew. And they have to find what's wrong. And that's where that's where dialogue breaks down because for a lot of it, there's aren't words to convey, you know, subtle light differences. Like I heard, I don't know if it's true. The Japanese have like 35 words for light. Well, after that up, I understand that. But if you're trying to describe the specularity on the back from the sun hitting here and there's blue light from here, mixing with a warm light from that, you know, and the T, the computer guy is not going to have a clue what you're talking about, but, it's, but we could get in there and discuss it and and shoot more tests and they'd show me stuff and I'd say, you know, yes and no, no, it's something great that once you get it, you know, then you've, and you've got a great director, right? Yeah, then you've got a whole project that's just set to really succeed. And I don't think any of us thought it was going to be that big a film either. And I Jurassic or T2? Yeah, yeah Jurassic. I, th I thought... Oh, wow. T2 to me was the breakthrough, but I knew it was so weird, <laughs> you know, that a lot of people are going to be saying, but Jurassic is like, you know, we've seen King Kong and this is well, it's better than King Kong and all that. I don't mean, I mean, technical, technical, but again, we're looking at it, or at least me, I'm looking at it. And I've been thinking about this already for 50 years. Right. So I'm looking at it as a little bit, not 50. I wasn't that old looking at it. And every day you get more used to it and more used to it and more used to it. And you're making the shots better, you know, and the T-Rex, you know, steps over the Jeep and, you know, Steven says, add a yeah. splash or his foot steps down in the puddle. So, okay, that's easy to do, but it adds another 5% of success to the shot. So that goes on in every shot. They're getting approved and approved because you have the confidence to, to do it and the team to do it and the and the enthusiasm of the director and ILM, the management, everybody do the thing. So, you know, it's uh, those shows don't come along often but i know what you're saying there was a big stretch there where we could do that and yeah. and and we were doing it too so the, the when when i was at nyu there was this kind of like um uh there 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 was this 
sort of folklore um, that we read once in a little snippet of a Sight and Sound magazine. I don't know if you remember that magazine back yeah. in the day. Uh, but yeah. we read in Sight and Sound magazine that Stanley Kubrick was working on AI and didn't like any of the special effects that he was getting for a, a shot that he wanted to do underwater in New York. But after he saw Jurassic Park, his brain exploded and that Steven Spielberg flew to London to like show him like a, a print of it. Uh, is any of that true? I've been wondering that for 20 years. Well, you could throw it in a big pot and stir it all up. And there is truth in that. Stephen or, or Stanley was not making the movie. He thought about it. He had a, a artist who'd worked and done like 3000 storyboards. Great guy. I think his name is Chris Brown. I think Chris maybe got his last name wrong or something. He would, did was great. All this work on it. But and then he but he did see the movie and he and Stephen had talked a lot even before that. And Stephen said, yeah, they're doing this dinosaur stuff. And, maybe, and so then I got a call from Stanley and I got. Yeah, I got called. Oh wow! I'd gotten called sometimes. Used to be working, and Stanley Kubrick's on the phone. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just me. If I was busy, it would be uh, Dave Barry, optical printer. Are you free to talk to Stanley Kubrick? And Dave goes, "Whoa, yeah, seriously, <laughs> those things did happen." Wow, seriously, because Stanley just needs his answer. It really to him. I mean, you know, we're eight thousand miles away. You know, he just needs his answer. So. Uh, Anyway, so Ned Gorman, who was my producer in a few shows, and I flew over for Thanksgiving with some shots that we had done for Jurassic. And one of the things Stanley really wanted to see was how we could communicate. How Stephen in L.A., and then he was in Krakow doing Schindler's List, uh, showing us, we were showing him, and he was getting feedback from dailies, and we're like 8,000 miles apart. Stanley, of course, didn't want to come to the States, and I knew that. And I think he was wowing me to leave ILM and go there, but before it, you know, before I wasn't going to do that either. Uh, but I did go and show him the stuff, and he was wow. getting all excited about it and thinking, "Well, I could some do some stuff from, you know, for uh, for AI that would look a lot better than than I imagined." But I don't think he'd ever shot anything for the show at all. And we started doing a test, and then he lost interest or something, and then Eyes Wide Shut took over, and uh, and that was it, you know. But and it was exciting. So, so 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 wait a minute. So what 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 you're telling me is that actually it was you who went over to show him the shots. Sure, that was it. Oh my god! I've always heard since I was like <laughs> a student at NYU that it was Spielberg put the movie in in, in a can <laughs> and got a private jet over to Stanley to to show it to him. I wish. Reality... <laughs> I wish I had got that jet. No, no, no. I, I don't know if the movie had come out or not, but again, what Stanley was interested in was communication. And and we we had three-quarter inch tape. We tape recorded, videotaped the communications with Steven in Krakow so we could we could play the Mac. And I had the same connection with Phil Tippett, you know, five miles away across Berkeley. We got microwaves set up, you know, live, because I didn't want to take the time for Phil to have to drive over here to, to help our animators. So you just, you know, you got a problem. You just solve it. You think about it, you solve it. So they got satellite set up, who knows at what cost, to go right to go to Krakow. So I and I brought the tape over, a couple of them, to show Stanley exactly how a half hour review of seven shots would go. And so he could see the, you know, I set it up so that I could see Steven during Jurassic, his face, he could see our faces, because it's not just words, 
you got to get the, you know, the subtext has got to be there. Just like so you guys you know, invented, you guys invented FaceTime back in those days. It, it was, it was something like, I mean, I don't know, it, but it was something like that. I, it, it's, it, you know, I saying, because I remember saying and specifying it, we've got to see the faces in both directions. <laughs> so that probably added who knows how much money, but how important was it to understand is Stephen really happy when he's smiling? Or is he just saying that looks great, but he's got a neutral face, you know? Because I know the guy well enough to know it's real. And then vice versa, he can look at me and think, you know, yeah, Dennis seems confident about this, and I can, you know, whatever it is. So anyway, so then I took it over to Stanley, and uh, it was pretty funny. I said, I, you know, I've got to have the tape back, the beta cam tape, because, you know, I Stephen doesn't know about this, you know? I said, oh, I talk to Stephen all the time. It'll be okay. Well, I got to have the tape back, and I reach for it. And Stanley had it in his hand, and he wouldn't let go. And this is the truth. Wouldn't let go. <laughs> so I'm like this, pulling it, and he's pulling it back to him. I said, you know, I've got to have it, because, you know, we, sh we recorded this as a record. No. So guess who won that? Uh, he won that, I I'm yeah, assuming. Yeah. <laughs> he certainly won that, yeah. So, so, um, wow. First of all, that's an incredible story and you've just completely changed my perception that I've had for, for, for decades. So thank you for that. Cause I always love having a new way of looking at things, but just one final thing on Stanley. What, what, what was he like? What was your overall impression of him? Like the times that you interacted with him? He was very nice. He was a very nice guy. He invited us over the only time we could get over there was on Thanksgiving and he's of course American. So he had a Thanksgiving dinner for us. And, you know, and, and we, his family was inside the main house. We were in a back workhouse. And I can't remember if he stayed with us or they, if he may have. Uh, you know, we literally flew over, rested for four or five hours, were driven to his house, had this dinner. And uh, I remember when he answered the door or walked in or something, he was holding a clipboard with a pen, pencil. And the clipboard was full of questions. And so I, you know, I mean, it's me there, right? But it's just like on the phone. Anybody on the other end of that phone, he, he needs an answer. So he was going to get all the answers for me about about effects, about you know how things have changed. I mean, you know, he got a call from him on on Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, no, no, it was on Full Metal Jacket. Uh, you know, when these Stanley Kubrick's on the phone, and I've got he's got this Full Metal Jacket thing where they're going in a helicopter and they got a prisoner. And a couple of soldiers are up there, and they were going to, I think, push the prisoner out of the helicopter. So and he's saying, well, how do I do this? How do I do it? So I had a couple of ideas. I don't know if the shot, if it's in the film or not. I don't think it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, he was thinking blue screen. And I said, no, you can't have a blue screen shot in a Stanley Kubrick movie. I suggested building a big set outside, a, a miniature, but huge, that you can go along from some traveling, something like you're in a helicopter, and the guy drops out and then drops out of the bottom of the frame and then you can cut. But, you know, it's all real, right? Camera shaking, lighting's all right, everything. So anyway, but he didn't do that. So, uh, you know, that he very, very curious, extremely curious. And then when we started, uh, we were, he wanted us to do a test for AI of uh, New York underwater. We were going to, I said, well, let's see if we can get a shot that you'd like, you know, of flying over the ocean and we'll have a couple of buildings sticking out of it. And I said, let's find that we could find like a oil rig in the North Atlantic and use that to lock the camera onto the or at least for tracking markers. 
of what we should do. We could put the building there and everything. Yeah, great. He said, great, great. And they, they found some footage that the, uh, the British uh, Petroleum Company had shot for a commercial, the dailies of it. But we never got into it. As soon as, soon as we'd worked out a budget and we needed some money, then he like changed his mind. Right, and right. and we never actually did it. The test uh, we were all ready to, and then Eyes Wide Shut started, and that was kind of it. Yeah, but I found um, it to be very, very pleasant, very nice. Uh, but I could see where he's just from what I've heard. You know, he would stick to his guns, and he still is a New York guy. You know, yeah. and he had an accent. He had the New York accent. Yeah, yeah. They they say <laughs> that um, if you watch any of the Stanley Kubrick movies, and I heard this from Leon Vitali. Um, that if you watch any of the Kubrick movies and you see Peter Sellers doing an American accent, he's doing an impression of Stanley Kubrick. Right. Um, did, did you did you work on on with on AI with Spielberg? Oh yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, I did the show. How much of the of the Kubrick um, kind of direction did you guys try to incorporate in the in Spielberg's AI? You know, Stanley kept saying, "Stephen, you should be doing this movie." I shouldn't be doing it. Steven, or what I heard was that Stanley couldn't figure out how to get the kid to look mysterious and built up in a machine and yet lovable and all that. He just couldn't figure. I had a lot of ideas, but none of them, he didn't go for the end. We never did any tests or anything like that. And that's, and, and so he kept thinking the movie needs a lot of heart. And he didn't know if he could get heart, I guess, into a visual effect that he was thinking of at the time for the, for the kid. So, you know, it was always, as far as I know, given that that probably Stephen would have eventually done it anyway, even if Stanley hadn't died, because they talked about it on or off for a few years. Mm. So, so, but you know, the movie's entirely different. I mean, you could tell the effect, the scenes are kind of the same, but the attitude's all different. The kid is, you know, a nice guy, regular kid, all that sort of stuff. Looks a little funny, but you can imagine. I think if Stanley was doing it, I think it would have been pretty dark. Yeah. Uh, so look, I've been on cloud nine for the last 54 minutes, uh, but I do want to be conscious wow. of your time. You've been so generous with it. Um, Theory, do you have do you have any parting questions for our, our esteemed Mr. Murin? Uh, I got lots of questions. I, I was just enjoying listening to you guys talk. I mean, I, I feel like you know so much more of the, the movie history that uh, before, I, mean, I was born in 1990. What, you know, what the heck do I really know? But uh, <laughs> it was it was great hearing from you. Um, my question is regarding the the next set of Star Wars films, you know, beyond the sequels and what they're doing with Mandalorian. Um, where do you think the technology is going to take the next leap? Because I feel like, you know, the originals, they were uh, remarkable for their time. And then the prequels came around and they made the originals look obsolete. And then now Mandalorian comes around and it's making the prequels look completely obsolete. So what do you think the next phase is going to be? of storytelling of technology i have no idea vr never had never, <laughs> well that seems to have died but it may come back you know and yeah. they are working on it but how many people want to i mean you know some do it all depends when the numbers get up that people are willing to wear their headset and see avatars of their friends all around yeah. you know that's not the general maybe the generation you know it's young young new guys i don't know but that's how things make the change that's how the pacing gets faster you know, from the original prequels, original Star Wars to the prequels and to now where it's really that, you know, I don't know. There are a lot of predictions are made. A lot of people make a lot of money predicting what's going to happen and it doesn't happen. That's a whole industry in itself. You adapt. You don't predict. 
It, it seems to me like I enjoy doing what I'm doing. You know, I, I, yeah. I just, it and really, you know, if I'm moved by it, I'm going to, I'm going to be thinking about how to, I'm going to be thinking I'm that's obsolete. What I just saw. Right. What could be better than that? You know, within that world. So, uh, you know, but I, I haven't seen much that does that to me anymore. I think I've just done so many of these shots, you know, right. and I like, I like a buildup, you know, what I really loved that shows uh, that a lot of people don't care for is a whole buildup in War of the Worlds in New York when the tripod comes out of the street. Awesome. That whole, that eight minute sequence from the minute awesome. they're walking along wondering what's going on till Tom picks up that crack, that rock and says it's cold. Like, what the hell is this? And well, it yeah. doesn't mean anything, but it's reality. It's stuff that yeah. goes on in the real world. That's where I live. And yeah, that's it's such an underrated movie, in my opinion, which is funny to say about a Spielberg movie, but I think War of the Worlds was excellent. Excellent, excellent film, man. Uh, that, 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 that's great. Um, I have to mention, I don't know if anybody's noticed it in the chat, but there's three Academy Awards back there, and the one in the middle has a Jedi cloak on, and that is the actual Oscar that Dennis received for his special effects supervision on The Empire Strikes Back, if I'm correct, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out to the audience out there. Um, Dennis, this has been incredible. Um, I, um, I'm super humbled that you would come join Theory and I on today's show. When I heard that you were willing to do it, um, I, you know, my mind literally exploded. So I do want to ask one last thing. Is there... Is there anything that you're working on right now that you're excited about, or are you just sitting back and and just enjoying the world? Chilling. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my mind's working all the time on stuff, but I'm not working on a project that's got me interested. I don't want to go and jump in airplanes and fly around and shoot anymore. So that that sort of <laughs> takes the movie business out of it. You know, I'm I'm consulting on a couple of things that are going on. Uh, that are that may or may not happen. I hope they happen. I'll be that'll only be my only role and something like that on it, you know. But I got a great life. I got kids, a great wife. I'm getting into music. Um, I cool. love uh, harmonies, and you know, I got a great 16 track uh, fader motorized in my home, which is crazy. And that's oh, wow. already obsolete. I mean, but I want I want to be able to touch them and feel them when they're moving. And your wife is a director. She's a documentarian. She's yeah, she's a filmmaker. I, I, she does a document, a couple of really good documentaries on landscape architecture mainly. Oh wow, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, so um, super talented uh, Dennis Murin, winner of eight Academy Awards plus one special uh, Academy Award for his technical achievement in his career. Are you after Walt Disney, the human with the second most Oscars? No, there was some other guys. There. I think there's like three others that have uh, one at 11, another at 12, and there may be another. You know, Walt kind of doesn't count because he took every right. offer. That, <laughs> <laughs> right. I think Walt, I think that's not. But also, the other guys were all department heads, the others. If you right, look right. at, you know, whether it's Edith Head or it's a couple of them, that's not true. One of the cameramen, I think there was one, but most of them, you know, their names are on 2000 movies. Because right, they had right, right. 200, you know. And... Right, right. Because you got Walt Disney, I think, has 28 Oscars attributed to him or something like that. Um, and then I actually did a little research trying to find if there was anybody that had more than your nine. And I couldn't find anybody. Uh, not, but maybe that, I just didn't do a lot of research. No, not, not that's a lie. Farcio Edward was an effects guy who did rear projection at Paramount. 
And I think he was up there. If you count the technical achievement awards, he was up there like over 10, I think. Right. Right. And I can't remember the other. I think one of maybe one of the, the guy that designed the Oscar was, uh, I, you know, I should remember these guys' names, but, you know, but again, you know, he's got 2000 credits and uh, you got MGM yeah. behind you, you know, no matter what you do, it's going to be great. So and, and George, did, did George ever say, "Hey, uh, Dennis, you should probably give me that Oscar that you have there"? Or <laughs> gladly, I if he ever yeah. asked for that, there's no problem at all. No, that's, awesome. no, that's it's so the 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 mind that is coming from him or Spielberg or Cameron or any of those guys is so complicated. That is really the the amazing pinnacle of this work to be able to you know direct people, but also to be able to imagine how it's all going to be together. So, you know, you got to be able to imagine it, break it apart, work with those people and be flexible and put a bet together. And, you know, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Nobody ever. Right. Yeah. But making a good one wow. is not luck. Do you still keep in touch with George? I, I know. Well, with the pandemic, no, he lives near here. Yeah. You know, we're oh, all yeah. around here, but I don't see much of anybody anymore. It's opening up now. Yeah. yeah. A little yeah. bit. So, so keep the discussion going at StarWarsTheory.com. Go over there, check it out. We built this whole blockchain-based uh, discussion forum where uh, folks actually get financial upside by posting and, and doing stuff like that. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, you know, go check out Dennis Murin's movies, and then you'll watch all my favorite movies, right? Raiders and, you know, Star Wars, Empire, Return of the Jedi, Back to the Future. I mean, it's just... What a resume and what an honor to get to speak with you, sir. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom. Thank of you my very heart. much for your time. Great. Thanks a lot. I'm it's a pleasure. Pleasure to meet you two guys, too. A lot of spirit. That's what we need. Spirit. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you very sure. much, Bye. sir. We'll see you guys later.